So good evening on this beautiful rainy evening. You sat a whole day. I hope you're being kind to yourself with all the things that can happen on the first day of a retreat. The various aches and pains. Tonight, I want to um, make a few brushstrokes that might begin or not might continue to help us link uh, how the Vipassana practice can lead into the open awareness practice and how they're, some of their uh, ways they're related. So a few years ago, Julie and I were leading a retreat, a Vipassana retreat here at Spirit Rock, just here in this room, and um, our beloved teacher, Sogni Rinpoche, happened to be spending the night at Spirit Rock because he was doing something around here. And it was the night that the people had just sat, many of them their very first day of Vipassana, but they had just sat one day just like you. And we said, Rinpoche, would you be willing to uh, come up and speak maybe 30 or 40 minutes to these people? They had no idea who Sokni Rinpoche was. He said, sure. So he comes up. And we wondered, you know, what will a great Dzogchen master say to first-time Vipassana students? And how will that go? And... Um, he completely honored the practice that they were doing. He said, I know what you're doing is hard. And he said, but you have to train your mind in this way in order for your practice to progress. So it's really beautiful how he made the links, just as Anna was doing this morning, just about how we have to, even though, as he said, it's hard work at, at first, um, we have to stabilize enough. We have to have enough clarity to be able to see this is a thought or this is a feeling so that when we open the awareness, we're not just swept away, just gone. So sometimes um, you might hear the phrase that in mindfulness practice, we're learning who we are and who we are not. We begin to see who we are and who we are not. So here's a poem, famous poem by Juan Ramon Jimenez. It says, I am not I. I am this one walking beside me whom I do not see, whom at times I manage to visit, and at other times I forget, the one who remains silent when I talk, the one who forgives sweet when I hate, the one who takes a walk when I'm indoors, the one who will remain standing when I die. So this poem, of course, is pointing to the great mystery that we're here exploring this week, that who we really are is so much more vast than our little, frightened, busy ego. I am not I. It is, it's asking this important question or exploring this important question of identity, true identity. Who am I? So am I the one who has room for life experience as it is and can forgive or am I the one who hates or am I in this case the, the whiner the inner whiner who's sitting here on the pillow going I hate this could, could I leave now you know or 
Am I the compassionate awareness that holds the inner whiner while she plans her escape, but who doesn't run off down the hill with her? Who, who are we? And, you know, of course, we're, we're all of these. We are, you know, it's, like, like, it's not like we can say, well, I'm not that. The question is, where do we live from? Where do we identify? The reason this question is so crucial is that to the degree we're identified with our little self, our little ego, grasping, aversion, reacting self, we suffer. So it's a really important question. Who or what am I? And, and suffer. We do suffer. We all suffer. There's plenty of suffering. And everyone in the room knows her own version of how we shrink into our little me, little jealous me, or little, little judging me, or little frightened me. And how we identify with that and we become, I, I am worthless. I am hopeless self. I am, I am no good self. We all know the anguish of believing in all that stuff, don't we? I think so. We do, don't we? Okay. <laughs> am I in the wrong group here? Yeah, the first group of Western women I've ever met who don't all know about that anguish? Everybody has different sufferings, but we have this suffering. We also, everyone in this room, knows what it's like, even if it's for moments, to relax, to let go of that little self, and to open in, even to touch the openness, the ease of being. Everyone's had that experience many, many, many times. So we've all... We've all touched it. We've all known it. A um, story about a woman. It's a true story, but I asked her if I could tell her story. And yes, but her name is not actually Karen. But we're pretending it is. So this woman, Karen, who I've known a long time, <clears throat> is a very dedicated practitioner. She does at least two hours of practice every day. She's done the Nundro. She's just done many, many years of sincere practice. She's a great woman. And about two, two and a half months ago, her husband of 25 years, father of her three kids, informed her that he didn't want to be married anymore. This was right after their last daughter went off to college. So pretty big, you know, you can imagine the Grand Canyon of the empty nest that opened. And like any one of us, you know, wow, bumpy ride. And there are times, like any one of us under these conditions, where she condenses down into and identifies with, for some minutes or hours, the suffering self. Um, and like I say, any one of us in this situation would. What's interesting is I've witnessed this over and over in the last couple of months. She'll be in this this. I'm so scared, I'm so mad, I'm so lonely self. And it's such a suffering. I mean, it's bizarre. I've known her a long time, and sometimes her, her eyes physical, her eyes are actually going different directions. She gets so terrified. Then she'll remember 
any one of many practices, maybe it's just the practice of looking directly at the emotion or just sitting with it, being with it. Or maybe it's the practice of holding this incredible grief with compassion. Or maybe it's the open awareness practice or visualization. Or maybe it's the practice of going to her sangha, which she's done, which is the right thing to do sometimes to say, help, I'm drowning here. But over and over we've witnessed her in this contracted self. Then she does a practice and something lets go and she relaxes back in to a greater truth. And what happens is that her eyes shine and her skin glows. And in a way, she looks more radiant than ever. And she's as amazed as the rest of us who are sitting there because this shift of identity has happened and so clear to her. It's like going from hell to heaven or even hell to just neutral. (laughs) But hell is a scary place. And she'll say, wow, from here... I'm okay. This is sad, but I'm whole. I'm okay. So so you can hear nothing in her outer circumstance changed. The husband is still off onto his next thing, which really is difficult for her. But her inner, something inside of her shifted, that identity. And it's that inner where we're sitting inside that makes all the difference. When she somehow releases the uh, I'm the midlife abandoned, betrayed self or the I'm the guilty, should have done more self. That's another really hard one. When she releases that and, and opens, there is this, again and again, this beautiful, resilient, very clear, awake presence shining. And that exact clear awakeness is inside of every one of us. It's underneath all of our coverings. It's what we're here to open to this week. So... All the lineages of Buddhism have in common the underpinning, the foundation of the Four Noble Truths. So we've heard the First Noble Truth, there is suffering. Yes, we've noticed, haven't we? Yes, it's all over the place. And the Buddha said, and the cause of the suffering is not the fact that things are impermanent and that husbands leave or whatever, although (laughs) we could argue with that at times, The cause of the suffering is our grasping and our struggling against life as it is. It's the fight. It's the inner... uh. (laughs) There's a really unique form of suffering that I experienced the last time we did the um, Prajnaparamita retreat with Sultram, (laughs) which was grasping after Prajnaparamita... (laughs) you know, grasping at, at space. People would come into the... And the suffering didn't go on for the whole retreat, but it was right at the beginning where people were used to, oh, there's something I'm supposed to get here. So they'd come into their interviews and, I can't get it. 
I'm trying to get it. And it was really a suffering. You're right. You can't get it. So relax. In case you notice yourself suffering over grasping at Prajnaparamita. Second noble truth, cause of suffering is this grasping. And the good news, the third noble truth, is that if this grasping is the cause of the suffering, is this opening, is this relaxing, is letting go that helps the suffering ease off, helps us begin to touch the freedom of our true nature. So every time that Karen goes through this process and then she's letting go, letting go, letting go and she is touching, she's inside the truth of that third noble truth, that beautiful truth, that that freedom comes in this opening and letting go. So this letting go of the third noble truth that the Buddha teaches of It's not about being passive. It's definitely not about avoiding our feelings or repressing our feelings. It's not letting go. It's about, um, in fact, feelings, especially since I talked about this woman, and we know this, that sometimes, many times, expression of anger or grief is part of the process needed in letting go. But this letting go that leads to freedom is really about opening rather than closing to life. To this this moment. How can I open to this moment as it is? And it's about loosening the, the way, the zillion kinds of ways that we grip on to you know, whatever. We grip on the ideas, we grip on the concepts, we grip on the things and people and identities. And it's about loosening that grip. It's like we squeeze our feet into some shoes that are three or four sizes too small. And then we try to walk and it really hurts. We wonder, why does this hurt so much? (laughs) It's because we're squished into this way too small space we grasp after a smaller self, small shoes. We actually hold on to these small identities because part of us is uncomfortable with the big, wide open space. And I just want to say that again. The suffering of the shoes, the little shoes, is because we're putting the shoes on and holding them on because we think they'll make us feel more comfortable. It's more comfortable to wear these tight little shoes than to feel the big, empty openness. So we practice. So we have sangha. So we have teachings that slowly, gradually over time, help us befriend this beloved that we're so afraid of, the big empty openness. And in time, we do, the, the, the thing that we're afraid of becomes the thing we most, it's our, our greatest refuge. Great spaciousness. So I want to do a little guided meditation exploration for a few minutes. Um, you can s- sit in whatever position you want. And just exploring a bit with sensation, um, a relationship to sensation and 
ways that we contract or open. So, for this, let's close our eyes. This is actually mindfulness of the body. So we'll close our eyes. And allow your attention to drop down into your body Noticing the level of sensation. And notice, especially after first day of sitting, sometimes there's pain or achiness, tightness. Notice the point of strongest sensation, which may be actual pain right now or may just be the place where your body's touching the cushion. Allow your attention to go to the sensation and know what is this? Not the not the story or the analysis of it or the diagnosis of it. Just is it a twisting or is it a burning? Or is it a pressure? Or a throb? Just the direct experience of this. Then notice around this strong sensation am I contracting against it? Am I tightening? Just notice. No judgment at all. So often especially where there's pain, the body-mind tenses. So notice the strong sensation, and then whatever it is, continue to notice it and soften the body that surrounds the sensation. Melt it. Continue being interested in this strong sensation. It might move or change or travel. Completely relax your body all around the area of strong sensation. Sometimes you'll even notice there's some tension associated with this sensation that's half a body away. Soften that. Let your belly soften. Still noticing that strong sensation, what happened to that? Let your whole body soften and relax. Allow the body to become 
spacious inside. Allow the strong sensation to float in this relaxed, open space. So there's no resistance. Even if it's just for this moment, can I let this strong sensation be here? Floating in this spacious, open body. Really notice the open, spacious, relaxed body. Soften even more. So you may notice, even for a moment, that it's possible to have the body-mind open so much, so relaxed, that it becomes like open space. And awareness knows the strong sensation but there's room for that sensation. So you can open your eyes. <laughs> Our beloved teacher, Stephen Levine, who taught us this, always says this after, and three quarters of you have heard me say this, so, but I'll say it again. Stephen says, this meditation is guaranteed to make your pain get better or get worse, or stay the same. <laughs> Thank you, Stephen. And the whole point, of course, is that it's not about changing the pain. It's about working with our relationship to the experience, which is what Anna talked about this morning, about learning that it's possible to begin to open up this awareness and have experience. This was a few moments with pain, physical pain or strong sensation, but the same is true for other strong emotions, strong experiences. Ah, that is possible to open up into a much bigger space where that can be known, but so that awareness can include the experience, the grief or the pain, but we don't have to identify it with it. We can even embrace the experience without entangling. Just out of curiosity, first of all, raise your hands if you were working with sort of uncomfortable physical sensation like achiness or pain, discomfort. Okay. Raise your hand if that caused the pain to get less. Okay. Worse? Raise your hand if your pain got worse. This is the first time that didn't happen. <laughs> a little both. Okay. Stay the same? Okay. Stephen was almost right. 
Usually he's always right in that way. So we're... This is again... This is a place where you can feel that the mindfulness can helps us learn about the awareness. And we're learning who am I and who am I not. When, when we practice like this, you might notice if you have an emotional story going or even a physical pain, you can get so wrapped in it that for that hour, who I am is this glob of tension in my back or I am the one who hates it. I mean, that's what's filling up the entire picture frame. You know what I'm talking about. Or the divorce or the whatever, the loneliness. The, the practice that we're doing is helping me see, is that really who I am? Or is that who I am not? Can I shift something and suddenly it doesn't even fill up the whole picture frame? It's like a little cloud and the big frame is here, just a little cloud in the sky. Different. We're learning, we're shifting this relationship. Um, and I don't want to pretend for one second either that I've mastered this, <laughs> not even close. I, I have to work on this so much, um, and I actually think everybody I know does. Uh, many of you know that I deal with some health we'll call them challenges, challenges, or we could call them problems, um, whatever. Uh, anyway, it's just an ongoing journey for me in practice to not become completely entangled with, if, if I'm in the symptom thing and if it's causing the problem. It's work for me to, ju- to not just identify with, I'm the sick one, or worse yet, I'm the, I'm the problem one, the one we have to make the adjustment for, and we have, you know, because I have a lot of these sensitivities. So, okay, you might notice the beautiful handmade altars that are usually here, or out in the rain, or they're under the eaves, but, you know, Deborah is allergic to them, that sort of thing. So, I don't know about you, but for me, I can get into a, oh my God, self, I'm embarrassed. Could I just creep away and hide, you know, not have to have everybody moving furniture because I'm coming? So I have to work with that, um, and, and I do. And all different kind of things at work, and sometimes laughing about it actually helps to break the spell. Um, two days ago, well, actually, a couple weeks ago, for those of you who live around here, you know we had this huge storm, and all this water came pouring everywhere, remodeled our, our creek, you may have noticed. And it remodeled our bedroom, too, where we had this leak, and the water came down inside the wall and up the floor. And um, then a few days ago, I started getting all this reaction and coughing and sneezing, coughing and sneezing. And then in the morning, I looked, what is going on in here, in my bedroom? And, and back in that wall where the leak had been two weeks ago, this black mold had grown back behind, right behind where I was sleeping. So only Marin County would you call a mold consultant. It's true. A mold consultant. How do we deal with this? It's in the bedroom. So the mold consultant told us, okay, besides the obvious, you have to rip this apart and take it all down and take the floor eventually when the rain stops. But now you have to clean it and you have to take the molding off. And then you have to make an airtight barrier. And so you have to see the image of my beloved husband down on his hands and knees putting up all this tinfoil around our bedroom, (laughs) 
our bedroom is getting, the floor, the walls are getting tinfoiled. And, and we're looking at each other like, God, can you believe this? And he looks at me at a certain point and he says, Deborah, maybe we should just wrap you in tinfoil. And <laughs> it just totally cracked us both up. And that moment of the crack up, it was like it broke something because I was sort of in my, oh my God. And, it, and then it just became, oh, it's just this thing we're doing. It, it, the whole identity just snapped with us laughing about it. So laughing can help. Blessings on my beloved friends. Julie's one of them. <laughs> People who are close enough to me to know, you know, it isn't a pretty thing when a person is contracted. And so, and, and I know that every one of us in here have whatever is our hot button. Me, the health thing, that one can really take a hold of me if I don't work with it. But, you know, whether it's money or family or relationship or, you know, whatever it is, we all have things that are the hot button that, that can really take us for a ride. Don't we? Yeah, we do. I know we do. And what I'm sure, because this is a very experienced group of practitioners, I think what you've probably noticed is that those hot button areas are the hot places of awakening. You notice that? That's where you have to put so much attention to not drown. You have to pay so much attention that it ends up, <laughs> it, it ends up teaching us, waking us up. This thing I'm talking about, these, this my health or my lack of it, over the many years I've dealt with this, is probably the single greatest waker-upper of my life. Because almost on a daily basis, there's something I have to open to that I'd really rather close to. I have to accept or forgive or work with or let go over and over, over and over. And many times it's my struggle, my suffering, my shame, my embarrassment, my anger, whatever, the suffering self that forces me to see where am I identified. Deborah, is my whole self, sick self, is that who I am? Or is there something so much bigger? And can I find my way back? So much. So... um, a story about a great teacher, Ajahn Chah. And for those of you who don't know about Ajahn Chah, um, he's a very great Buddhist master from the Thai forest lineage, um, Jack Kornfield's teacher. Very profound, very renowned. This, uh, could tell many stories. He, This will give you a hint. A million people came to his funeral. It's a hint that he was very... Now, I didn't really get it until I went to Thailand and I was at a monastery practicing at the level of the reverence for him. Um, and I was there, right when I first got there, there was no translator. So I went in to this temple cave where I was and um, the teacher, Ajahn Jiminyan, recognized me from Spirit Rock. And there was all these circles of lay people and nuns and monks sitting around him and then those of us who wanted to interact with him about our meditation practice would come, and that people would sit and listen. So it was my turn, and and he's talking in Thai, so I can't understand him. I hear this stream of, of words, but he's talking to the people sitting around. It's very sort of family. 
And he says, spirit rock. And their faces were all sort of blank. So what's spirit rock? Jack Cornfield, and they're sort of sitting there. Ajahn Chah. And they all, you know, their, their eyes open and their jaw dropped. And, they're like, and there was this like mumbling through the crowd, Ajahn Chah. And you could just feel this, like it's like they're saying, she's in the lineage of Ajahn Chah. Her teacher lived with Ajahn Chah. And it was like, you know, I didn't personally deserve the attention, but Ajahn Chah completely deserved this level of reverence and devotion. He was a, he was a great man. So um, Jack Cornfield once said he was, Ajahn Chah was the, the wisest person he ever met. And Jack has met a lot of people. So here's the story about Ajahn Chah. Um, Ajahn Chah was, by his own choice, entered monastery at age nine and began his practice, his study. That's what he was pulled to. He was very sincere in his practice. And then in his early 20s, he wanted to go live uh, as a forest monk, living the lifestyle of the Buddha, living and sleeping in caves and forests and using the alms bowl and... Um, traveling by foot to visit various teachers and, and practicing. And he did a lot of practice, and he was quite developed. And he went to see who was considered the greatest of the Thai forest masters, Ajahn Mun, considered for centuries to be the, the real great, great teacher. So he went there, and he only stayed three days um, and yet, after the three days, if someone said, who was your teacher, he would say, Ajahn Mun. And those three days were so powerful for him that it really shaped his life. So the turning point was on the second day. Ajahn Mun said, yes, you can see the arising and passing of, of things in your mind, you can see, uh, you can be in, in uh, meditative absorptions and be in great happiness and joy. Or you can be in ordinary thought and see the arising and passing of, of thoughts and emotion. And he said, But who is the one that knows? Who's the one that's aware of all of this? And Rest in the one who knows. The forest masters use that phrase, the one who knows, for this open awareness. So Ajahn Chah was so ready that, that when he said that, he recognized the awareness. He recognized the one who knows. And that was one of his he considered to be one of his greatest awakenings, so significant that it shaped his, his practice and his life, um, his teaching for the rest of his life, so significant that the next day he knew, I don't have to learn anything else from Ajahn Mun. What I need now to do is put what I know into practice. And the rest is, is the history of Ajahn Chah as a great, a great teacher. Who is the one that knows? Rest in the one that knows. So Ajahn Chah learned that we can stay caught 
in our mind, in all the objects of the mind, and that no matter how good the story is or the or the role or the identity is that we're so caught up in and you know living out it never it, it, it there's this nagging insecurity and homesickness that won't go away if it's happening at the level of mind he also learned though that we have the capacity to open beyond that small mind to open into something so vast and so open and wise that to touch it even for a few moments is just peace it's there's not a question there is just home i'm home for those moments so we're just going to do one more short um, little exploration. Do you need to wiggle around a little bit? Just squirm a little bit. Actually, let's just for one minute stand up. And after a whole day of sitting, just a little stretch. Yeah, take a couple of deep breaths that help you in the evening to bring your energy back. Or just not not that many more minutes. Okay, so we can sit down for one more short meditation exploration and this one is again uh, good to do you can do this with your eyes open or closed wherever you're most comfortable Allow your attention this time to go to listening, to sound. Different sounds that are in the room, in the building, and the wind in the trees outside.
not reaching out and in any way grabbing at the sound or pushing away any sound, but just relaxing. And noticing sound as it arises, as it's known, and as it passes. No need to attach a story or preference. Just sounds. Notice how listening opens the field of awareness, expands the field of awareness, so that even if an airplane went by miles in the sky, that would be included. So the field of awareness expands. So again, relax the body, soften. Allow a spacious, open awareness to simply know sound coming and going. Notice that as awareness opens, there's no particular inside or outside. Spacious awareness inside the body-mind and all around. Body relax even more, soften.
Just knowing sounds. This awareness is clear, bright, has no judgment. Clarity knows that sound comes and goes. Relax any effort at all. Awareness receives sound, no sound, naturally. Notice the spacious, expansive openness in the body and outside. There's nothing to figure out. There's nothing to fabricate. Notice this quality of open awareness. Relax into the open awareness. Dissolve into that. Relax. Figuring out.
I'll end this evening with a poem by a friend, Jennifer Wellwood. Know the silence that lives at the depth of all things. Now the dissonance of the world cannot overwhelm you. Know the radiance that shines forth as the nature of all things. Now you can face into the darkness and not waver. Know the vastness that everywhere is the truth of all things. Now the small cares of your life no longer crush you. Know yourself nakedly, O bright expanse of wakefulness. Now you are anchored amidst the tides of self-forgetting.